From the Psych Hub Podcast Network, you're listening to You Ask, We Answer. Hi, and welcome to the You Ask, We Answer podcast. I'm Marjorie Morrison, your host, and I'm also the CEO and co-founder of Psych Hub. In this podcast, I ask the most common mental health questions searched online, and I get them answered by world-renowned experts. This podcast is a co-production between Psych Hub and the Columbia University Department of Psychiatry and is made possible by HCA Healthcare. If you'd like to submit a question or topic, please do so by emailing us at podcasts at psychhub.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today, we have a phenomenal expert with us to talk about really, really, really difficult topics and a hard conversation about self-harm. So I want to start, before we get in to Dr. Kelly Workman and all of her brilliance, I want to make sure that if you or someone you know are thinking about self-harming, please contact the Suicide Prevention Lifeline listed in the description. Dr. Kelly Workman is a licensed clinical psychologist at Columbia Doctors and serves on the faculty as an assistant professor in medical psychology and psychiatry at Columbia University Medical Center. She is a DBT Linehan board certified clinician and a board certified behavior analyst. Her areas of expertise include borderline personality disorder, suicidal and non-suicidal self-injurious behaviors, trauma, interpersonal difficulties, anxiety disorders, mood disorders, and addiction. Additionally, Dr. Workman has expertise in providing behavior management training to parents and caregivers, as well as consulting with residential treatment centers, group homes, and elementary, middle, and high school. Wow. Dr. Workman has advanced expertise in dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, She also specializes in a variety of other evidence-based treatments, including acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT, prolonged exposure, PE, cognitive processing therapy, CPT, exposure and response prevention, EPR, and cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Wow. I have to say, before I even let you say anything, (laughs) being at Psych Hub as a place that really is all about educating consumers about evidence-based practice and then educating practitioners on how to use them and upskill them, you are like the megalode. Like you literally, you, you just must really value evidence-based practices. How did that happen? Did you start learning one and then it built on each other? Yeah, I'm, thanks for that introduction, Marjorie, and I'm so happy to be here today. And that that really is sort of how it happened. I got started before I became a psychologist as a behavior analyst, and so I worked with individuals with behavioral challenges and developmental disabilities. So I got really passionate about working with really difficult problem behaviors. And of course, I think we know the most effective ways to do that, to treat that is through these evidence-based treatments. So it kind of just sort of snowballed into more with DBT being the one that has taken the majority of my training, but I've also been fortunate to train with some really amazing experts in ACT and CBT and, and those related behavioral treatments. Amazing. I'd like to start by just kind of laying the landscape out because, you know, we hear a lot about suicide, self-harm. Could you just help us sort of understand what is considered self-harm and what does that mean when, when it's used? 
Yeah, this is such a great question. And, you know, self-harm generally involves deliberate actions that are directly harmful to yourself. And so we can think of them in, in two general categories. So one category is this direct self-harm. And I think this is what we most often think about when we think of self-harm. So these are where we see behaviors such as cutting or burning. Other examples might include scratching, punching yourself, banging yourself against objects or banging objects against yourself biting, puncturing the skin, those kinds of behaviors. So when behaviors involve a direct and deliberate destruction to body tissue in the absence of any intent to die, we refer to this as non-suicidal self-injury or NSSI. Okay, so that's one category. Then we have this other category of behaviors that we think about as indirect self-harm. And these are behaviors that are quite damaging to oneself, but it doesn't involve the deliberate or direct alteration of bodily tissue. It's also considered indirect because the effects might not be so obvious and until some time has passed and the effects might also not be externally visible to others. So examples of this type of self-harm are things like substance abuse or disordered eating behaviors or habitually reckless or risky behaviors um, such as unsafe sexual practices and, and things of that nature can also include things like inadequate self-care. So maybe not taking medications that are medically necessary. Um, so we think about those two categories as self-harm. And I, I think for today, we're really focusing on that non-suicidal self-injury or direct form of self-harm. What a great way to describe it. I don't know that I've thought about it like that, but you explained it perfectly well, where in some cases it is direct and very intentional. Maybe the other way is not as intentional, but it has just, it can have major implications. So why do people engage in self-harm? Yeah, this is really important to understand. And I think it can be really confusing for people to understand as well. A lot of us don't see how somebody can intentionally inflict harm upon themselves. But what we know from, from lots and lots of research is that there's a number of different functions or purposes that the behaviors serve. And I think before we can understand these different purposes of NSSI, we need to understand a really key behavioral principle, and that is reinforcement. So any behavior that is reinforced, whether it's NSSI or anything any of anyone else might engage in, it's going to continue to happen. And so we have positive reinforcement where there's adding something pleasant to the environment. An example might be like when we get those reward points after using credit cards, and then there's negative reinforcement. So that's taking away something aversive from the environment. So an example of that is like when we get into our cars to drive and there's that dinging that goes off because we didn't buckle our seatbelt yet, the dinging only goes off once we buckle our seatbelt. So that's an example of negative reinforcement. So with that in mind, reinforcement is a really critical factor at play when we're thinking about why this behavior happens. It happens because it's being reinforced in some way. And research shows us that the number one reason why people engage in non-suicidal self-injury is really to cope with difficult feelings. And so we call this purpose emotion or affect regulation. 
So when NSSI serves this purpose, what it actually means is that the behavior is alleviating emotional distress, such as sadness, despair, shame, misery, and we get short-term relief from that. However, we also know that NSSI tends to increase negative emotions and affect in the long run. So people do report feeling more shame and more guilt after they've engaged in the behavior. So this keeps us stuck in a negative feedback cycle with this. When you mention that it makes me think of substance use where people are using a substance and it gives them some immediate relief or escape, but then after they feel guilt and shame and then use again to make that go away. Is there some similarities with that? Absolutely. There's a lot of similarities with that pattern. And this is this is really the primary reason. I think the interesting thing about substance use is that we know it can also be quite pleasurable. And so initially people do it because it just feels good. You know, there, there's sort of that that effect that happens. We don't see that with NSSI. But in terms of that pattern of negative reinforcement, meaning we're engaging in some behavior to help us try to feel a little bit better than whatever negative thing we're feeling, that is very much the case here. So that's like the number one reason why people engage in the behavior. There's also a number of other reasons that we're seeing come up. And the other one, which is also endorsed quite often, but secondary to emotion regulation is self-punishment. So this is where NSSI is an expression of anger or a derogation toward oneself. Many people who struggle with intense emotions have learned that they need to punish or invalidate themselves. And so with this purpose, we see people tend to endorse a high level of self-hatred. And so harming oneself or inflicting pain on oneself can feel really congruent with a highly negative self-image there. And it's actually somewhat interesting. There's some research that does show that the higher a person scores on on negative self-belief, so basically the, the more negative they think about themselves, the longer they're able and willing to tolerate or endure pain wow. as well. So we see that really strong connection. And so it's interesting because that means in terms of treatment, working on increasing somebody's sense of self-worth can help undermine this pattern. So this is another really common reason, but again, tends to be secondary to that emotion regulation reason. There's also other reasons that I can talk about too. Some of them are to generate feelings. We might call this an anti-dissociation reason. So individuals who dissociate and may describe feeling unreal or feeling nothing at all. And so NSSI may be a way to generate emotional and physical sensations that allow individuals to feel real or alive again. So can you help explain what does it mean to disassociate? So dissociation is really this detachment or disconnect from what's happening around you. And it can either be we're sort of retreating within ourselves and unaware of what's going on, but it can also lead to things feeling unreal or distorted around us as well. So some examples are when we're kind of 
checked out and, and like time has passed and we have no idea how that time has passed. It's a little bit different from like just zoning out because this often happens in response to a, an, a strong emotional cue. There's some sort of like emotional threat or threat to safety there that will then dissociate or, or disconnect from that present moment reality. So that means we're going inward and not actually feeling the emotions or the sensations or the thoughts necessarily associated with what's going on around us at that time. So I've, you know, worked with people who've reported, I like just felt so empty and nothing that I didn't know if I was real. And so this was a way to help me see I'm still real and still here. So that's another purpose that this behavior can serve. We also see it sometimes serving the purpose of anti-suicide, meaning that people are trying to avoid the urge to act on suicidal behaviors by doing something else to prevent it. And this is sort of the, the way that they know how to prevent it. So they'll engage in an SSI as a way to try to circumvent that pattern. And then a couple others are establishing interpersonal boundaries. So sometimes people don't really know any other way to establish their own autonomy or create a distinction between themselves and others. So when they engage in self-harm or NSSI for this reason, tend to give them the sense of control. It's sort of that thing that only they can do and nobody else can get in the way of. So it really helps them differentiate themselves from others too. Sometimes we see the behavior serve an interpersonal influence function. And this is where the NSSI might be conceptualized as this cry for help, as a means for avoiding abandonment or an attempt to be taken more seriously or otherwise affect people's behavior. And I do have a lot to say about this one because I think this is the one that can be misunderstood a lot because when NSSI serves this purpose, it can often lead to people in the individual's environment to feel as though they're being manipulated. And manipulation is the dreaded M word for me because I think it's so, so pejorative and it doesn't actually help us understand what's going on with the person. And so with this function, we need to learn how to differentiate intent from impact. And so we tend to see that there's actually a significant skills deficit in communicating needs and subsequently getting needs met. And so this display of behavior is what tends to be reinforced by others. Other asks for help or other expressions of emotions don't get acknowledged or are ignored. And so this is the thing that gets the reaction from other people. And it's very rarely the case that somebody does this to get a reaction. They're not thinking about that. It's not that intentional or explicit. And most of the time, people aren't even aware that other people in the environment are reinforcing this behavior through attention that they're providing. It's just, it's how it's been reinforced. And if other skillful behaviors are not being acknowledged or reinforced, then this is the behavior that's going to continue to happen. Thank you for explaining that. So I'm curious, you just did a really good job laying out all the different reasons. So it's clearly not cookie cutter. It's clearly not one size fits all. People 
do it for different reasons. There's different types. So I'm curious how much of it is a stem of mental health issues? Is it underlying mental health issues? Is Are there other factors that contribute to the, the impetus of kind of what mm-hmm. makes someone start to behave this way or engage in these behaviors? There are a lot of variables at play. While NSSI is much more common among people who do experience mental health challenges such as depression, anxiety, eating disorders, substance problems, not everyone meets criteria for psychiatric disorders either. So it can also happen in in somewhat of the absence of that. We also know that people who engage in NSSI do tend to report being more sensitive to interpersonal stress and conflict and tend to have more difficulty engaging and regulating emotions. So overall, it tends to be indicative of some type of distress, but that's going to look different for the person and, and the context that they're in. But it is quite common to have this correlated with a lot of mental health challenges. Which I think makes makes a lot of sense. So there's all of us that are in situations where we know people that are either close to us or the colleague at work or something and you pick up some signs. What are some things that we should look for, if you will, for signs of self-harm? Well, I, I first just want to say that finding out somebody you care for or or love or know is engaging in uh, non-suicidal self-injury can be quite heartbreaking and, and difficult to understand. So I, I just want to acknowledge that, you know, there's a whole range of emotional responses that we can have in response to finding out a loved one is struggling with this. So it's important to recognize that as well. That said, we can't ignore this at all. We've got to address it. And so some things to look out for might be if there's a significant change in somebody's mood or behavior. So if you're noticing that somebody is withdrawing more from you or from family or friends or people they they have typically liked to be around, or they're maybe feeling down for a prolonged period of time, or maybe they're no longer interested in things that they used to feel really interested in, that could be a, a warning sign or indicative that something is going on with them. Other possible signs might include seeing unexplained cuts or burns or bruises. These typically occur on the arms or the legs or the stomach area, but of course their their self-harm can occur on other areas of the body as well. Maybe you're finding razors or sharps or knives or other items that weren't there before. They're in random places and you're not sure how they got there. These are things that people may use to engage in NSSI. So finding more of that around can could be a potential sign. Maybe you're also noticing that the person is now careful to not expose certain parts of their body to you. You know, in romantic contexts, the person may withdraw from physical intimacy, so they may not want to be touched. They may put up a physical barrier in order to hide scars or wounds or bruises. These are all some potential signs. However, there's no 
definitive indicator of this. And so it's important to not just say like, oh gosh, I found, you know, this razor here. It means this. That may not be the case, but I think it's sort of looking at it as a whole and seeing, are you noticing general changes in somebody's behavior over time or their mood that seems to be, you know, concerning, or maybe they were, you know, more engaging or, or active and now suddenly they're not. So that coupled with some of these other potential signs could be indicative of NSSI going on. Has it gotten worse since COVID or is isolation contributed to any of this? I'm curious if you've seen any trends. Yeah, isolation is contributing to this. And we know that there are more adolescents engaging in this behavior. The rates are going up. COVID has has created, um, I, I think some people are calling this a mental health pandemic. And while there were already issue mental health difficulties that are widespread, we're seeing this just kind of skyrocket with COVID and with that isolation, especially for, you know, adolescents who are developing and, and missing out on so many important developmental aspects with peers and, and whatnot. So there there's a lot happening with this, unfortunately. It's just like such a hard thing. And, you know, it just has got to be hard as a as a person who knows someone going through it and then also hard going through it yourself. Yeah. I can say too that there's the average age of onset for NSSI does tend to be between 11 and 15 years old. However, we're also seeing that it can happen at younger ages as well. It is common, much more common than I think people realize. You know, prevalence rates are showing that it's typically higher than 20% across people's lifetimes. So there's a a lot of people are struggling with NSSI. What about the role of social media? Does, does there, I mean, we always talk about social media with people feeling, you know, anxious or left out. Does it, have you seen any correlation with this, with self-injury? Yeah. I mean, I think social media has its pros and cons, of course. And we do see that there are more indicators of social media driving adolescent distress and and mental health issues alongside of this. There's also, you know, there's also ways in which certain behaviors can be glamorized or, you know, idealized or certain, you know, I think certain types of like body image and and other things tend to be like emphasized a lot. And so when we're making those comparisons, it can lead to somebody feeling incredibly inadequate. And that coupled with not really having a lot of developed coping mechanisms, or maybe they don't feel like they have anyone to talk to, you know, the individual is sort of left to figure it out kind of on their own, even though they're not necessarily on their own. That I think is, that can be the thought process. And so it does certainly complicate the picture. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. 
HCA Healthcare, a leading provider of healthcare services, is committed to improving more lives in more ways. Every day, more than 275,000 HCA healthcare colleagues work together to positively impact patients, each other, and local communities. With more than 230 behavioral health programs across a connected network of treatment centers, HCA Healthcare is in a unique position to make a difference in the lives of those with mental illness and related disorders. So now for the hard question that I'm going to guess our listeners are thinking about as I'm thinking about it quite a bit is how do you stop? Is it curable? Are there certain techniques that work better than others? Mm -hmm. Well, if you are struggling with NSSI or you know somebody who's struggling with it, I think seeking professional help is really essential here. And, And step one, could be a, a place too where you reach out to one of the hotlines listed here. It is a hundred percent possible to stop the behavior, and we have really effective treatments for this. Dialectical behavior therapy being one of them. That was a treatment initially developed to help individuals who struggle with chronic emotion dysregulation and problem behaviors meant to help cope with that, including NSSI and suicidal behavior. So there are really effective treatments and interventions for this. So it can change. You know, another thing to keep in mind too, is that none of us can directly control our thoughts or emotions or urges that come up. We do have control over our behavior though. Now this can be really, really difficult. It is quite difficult to do, especially if we don't have any other coping skills at play. That said, these are all things that we can learn and these are what the treatments are designed to help us develop over time. Mm I also want to remind people, too, that stopping a behavior that has become a frequently used unhealthy coping strategy is going to take time and effort. It's rarely just a light switch that goes mm-hmm. off and we you know, are engaging in it every day to suddenly none at all. It typically doesn't work that way. So I, I think just knowing that there's going to be some ups and downs with this and that in If you're in the right treatment, generally, we're going to see a positive trajectory with all of that. So in terms of what to do to try to stop the behavior, you know, I think we first have to kind of understand our own motivation for stopping the behavior, changing the behavior. And so one of the things that can really help us understand this a little bit more is writing out some pros and cons. So what do we get from engaging the behavior and what are the costs to engaging in this behavior? And of those pros and cons, what has short-term effects and what has long-term implications? So we can think about that as well as doing pros and cons for engaging in some sort of skillful alternative behavior. You know, what could we get by doing something other than NSSI or other, you know, unhelpful behaviors in the long run. So that can be a way to start building our motivation for it. Yeah. Do people do it for attention? You know, I, I just wonder that is it's physical and you can see it. Is there a piece of this that's for attention or, or not? Well, it's not that explicit or intentional and it's pretty, it's pretty complex. You know, I, I, 
described earlier that one of the functions of NSSI could be for interpersonal influence. And that is, again, where the behavior may serve as this kind of cry for help or a way to avoid being abandoned or rejected or an attempt to be heard or taken more seriously. But it does have the effect of influencing other people's behaviors. So it's pretty rare where somebody has like this explicit thought process of I'm going to hurt myself so that you pay attention to me. That is often not the case. So I, I think it's you know, worth trying to really understand what was the thought process going on for this person and how is the behavior being reinforced by others? A lot of times we see people very well-meaning, but inadvertently reinforcing this. Again, they might only be acknowledging these big displays of behavior or distress rather than other attempts at of communication happening. It just sounds so complex to use your words right and and in some of these cases on this show and some of the things that we talk about they're a little bit more black and white not always obviously mm -hmm. depression is different and we talked about different kinds of depression but i appreciate the lens of the different reasons why the different types and the different kind of process that it would be to either recognize it in someone or to to treat it and i think for us, I think the most important thing is, is that for us listeners to, to understand that it's common, it sounds like it's most common starting at the teen adolescent years. So mm -hmm. earlier intervention, probably I'm going to guess is a lot more effective than letting the ride out over time. And that, yeah, it manifests in people different ways. So what I was hoping that you might be able to do for us before we wrap up is could you give us the top tips for how to support someone who self-harms? Yeah, this is so important. So I, I think, you know, again, number one is to really encourage them to seek professional help with that. I think it's also important to try to establish um, yourself as somebody they can trust and as a support for them. And so the ways that we can do this is to really take a non-judgmental and curious stance. You know, again, a lot of people don't understand how somebody can intentionally inflict harm upon themselves. It's confusing to understand for most people. And so they go in, you know, like, why would you do this? How could you be hurting yourself? You know, very intense. And all that does is lead the person to shut down and feel ashamed for, you know, having this struggle. And mm -hmm. so when we can approach with more curiosity and, and non-judgment, that helps us steer clear of assumptions, that helps us avoid problem solving, and it can help us just assure the person that we're there to listen and to understand we also don't want to punish or threaten them. This is a behavior that's going to be difficult to stop, but completely possible to stop. But it is going to take time and punishing somebody for engaging in NSSI is not going to help stop the behavior. In fact, it might actually just make things worse. So if you're a parent and, and you know, or even you know, somebody in a, in a friendship or, or in a romantic relationship with somebody, punishment can happen in all sorts of ways or threats can come up in all sorts of ways. That is not a helpful response to. So again, stepping back, 
trying to establish yourself as as somebody they can trust and go to who will be non-judgmental and curious and help them help guide them towards the the effective treatment supports is going to be really important you know also having your own patience because this is going to be something that's going to take time to change that's going to be important and engaging in your own self-care as well. So this might be, you know, seeking your own support. We also want people to be informed. So finding more resources. So if you're a parent and your child is a minor, reaching out to their school for help can be something really important and effective as a way to build more supports in the in the whole environment across contexts. There's also a number of books out there to help loved ones and as well as self-help based skills books and there's some other online resources so I think it's being as informed as you can be about like what this behavior is all about what are some of the underlying struggles in there and I think most importantly it's approaching with compassion it's approaching with non-judgment and approaching with curiosity and don't ignore it we can't let this go ignored. We've got to address it, even though it might feel uncomfortable or confusing with how how to approach the topic with somebody. Wow, Dr. Workman, this was fascinating, a little bit depressing, but also mm-hmm. encouraging that there's help out there and there's hope out there and there's resources. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to really lay it all out there for us to help us understand it in a cohesive way when it sounds like there's a lot of different factors and a lot of different types. And I just really thank you for your time. And I just encourage our listeners again, if they know someone they need resources to please reach out to the hotline listed. And I can love your last point, which is speak up, say something. You're better off saying something than not saying anything at all. That's what being being a support, being a friend, being a family member is kind of about as we all kind of have to look out for each other. So I can't thank you enough for being on the show. This was wonderful. And um, I hope we get to continue talking to you and, and learning so much from all of your expertise. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. And I'm, I'm glad we were able to have some space to talk about this really important topic. Thanks for listening to You Ask, We Answer, a co-production between PsychHub and the Columbia University Department of Psychiatry, made possible by HCA Healthcare. If you enjoyed this episode, head over to the PsychHub YouTube channel, where you can watch shorter animated video episodes of You Ask, We Answer. And don't forget to like or subscribe to the show wherever you're listening. If you'd like to submit a question or topic, please do so by emailing us at podcast at psychhub.com. The You Ask, We Answer podcast, presented by HCA Healthcare, brings you answers to the most common, intimate, real-life questions patients ask. HCA Healthcare, a leading provider of healthcare services, uses its more than 32 million annual patient encounters to advance science, improve patient care, and save lives. With 182 hospitals and approximately 2,000 sites of care, HCA Healthcare's behavioral health experts are committed to reducing mental health stigma and helping patients access the resources they need when and where they need it.